Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 3rd of June, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, we're going to get straight on with uh, Neil Ferguson from Imperial College, Brian, because he was giving evidence yesterday to the House of Lords Science and Technology Committee. Uh, let's just have a, a brief listen to uh, some of the the uh, comments that he made. Thank you, Chairman. Um, uh, I'm, su I'm surprised by what Professor Ferguson just said about Sweden, and I'd like to come back to it before I move on to R and R naught, if I might, because Uppsala University took the Imperial College model, or one of them, uh, and adapted it to Sweden and forecast deaths in Sweden of over 90,000 by the end of May if there was uh, no lockdown, uh, and 40,000 if a full lockdown was enforced. In fact, there have only been 4,350 deaths in Sweden till the end of May. This does seem to be a huge discrepancy and suggests there was something wrong with the model. We've heard today that, on the whole, the models are thought to have performed well. That doesn't sound to me like they have performed well. Uh, and with, But we are looking okay, forward. Let, let it, let, let it um, can, I, can I just maybe respond to that quickly? Um, first of all, they did not use our model. They developed a model of their own. Um, we had no role in parameterizing it. Generally, the key aspect of modeling is how well you parameterize it against the available data. But to be absolutely clear, they did not use our model. They didn't adapt our model. I mean, yeah, but, but surely the key point is that uh, without a lockdown, from what we've just heard from both Professor Ferguson and Professor Keeling, one would expect a relatively high uh, death figure in Sweden. It's in fact much lower than no, that. I think, I think that is an interesting question. It's clear that there have been significant, has been significant social distancing in Sweden. And our best estimate is that has led to a reduction in the reproduction number to around one. It's clear when you look at their mortality, they're not seeing the rate of decline that most European countries are seeing. But nevertheless, it is interesting that adopting a policy which is short of a full lockdown, they've closed secondary schools and universities, and there is a significant amount of social distancing, but it's not a lockdown. And they have got quite a long way to the same effect, albeit they, yeah, there's no evidence of really a rapid decline in mortality there in the same way as other European countries. And so that is something we are looking at very closely. I mean, lockdowns are very crude policies. And what we would like to do is have much more targeted control of transmission going forward, which doesn't have the same effort. So he seemed pretty uncomfortable with the line of questioning, uh, because really, what could he say about it? Uh, Sweden's numbers uh, absolutely uh, prove the point. So let's just briefly have a, a look at them. If, uh, as uh, he was asked about deaths, uh, well, first of all, uh, if we're looking in absolute terms, uh, UK, well, miles ahead of Sweden. This is a bit unfair, really, because, of course, populations are completely different. Um, so let's have a look at it uh, more in terms of uh, uh, deaths per million. Uh, and it's a bit it's a bit closer there. Uh, but still, the lockdown country, the UK, way out ahead in front of uh, Sweden, the non-lockdown yeah. country. Uh, he was saying that there was significant social distancing in Sweden. Well, of course, the photographs uh, showing people in pubs uh, on the seafronts and so on, enjoying uh, beers, um, sort of doesn't uh, imply that the social distancing was, was massive. But anyway, uh, if, if we look, go on with the comparison 
Let's look at the economic situation between the UK uh, and Sweden. So this is for quarter one of 2020, and the UK had a 2% fall in GDP. Uh, Sweden had a 0.3% fall in GDP. In fact, if we expand that out uh, to other uh, EU countries, uh, we've got uh, the UK and Sweden, as we've just seen, France nearly minus 6% GDP, uh, Italy around 4.5% drop in GDP, uh, Spain a little bit more. So really quite spectacular. Ferguson then went on uh, to say this, uh, that uh, they came to a different policy conclusion, but based on really quite similar science. So he was really trying to determine to try and push the point uh, that Sweden had uh, reached the same scientific uh, analysis of the situation, uh, but that they took a different policy conclusion. Uh, and he really didn't have any, any answer. He said, uh, I don't agree with it, but scientifically they're not that far from scientists in any other part of the world. But he didn't have any real explanation, Alex, for, for why uh, Sweden was doing so much better. Welcome to the programme. Thank you, Mike. And uh, it seems to me that Professor Ferguson was closer to the mark when he said that lockdowns are a crude policy. Now, that is the first time I've heard him or anyone in the mainstream advisory camp with the ear of government say this. I know that they are in their own policy documents, but now they're having to admit it to parliamentary hearings, which uh, is quite uncomfortable for them. Here is an advert which appeared in the Financial Times on Sunday, which is giving the sort of popularised version for the chattering classes of the lockdown. Retreat from the world to help save it. Subtitle, there's a little hero in us all. Fight COVID-19 with the World Health Organization's five heroic acts. So there you are. By uh, failing to buy anything and failing to do your job, you are a hero and you are retreating from the world to help save it. I think we're getting towards a religious doctrine here, are we not? Well, uh, <laughs> perhaps we are. But uh, the bit I wanted to add is what we're certainly seeing is applied behavioural science, which is we're going to see more of this in today's news, but we're being controlled. Uh, the advert is one tiny part of it. Uh, abs absolutely. Uh, Alex, uh, there have been comments from Sweden on this? Uh, yes, there have. What we can do is recommend that people go to ukcolumn.org slash coronavirus or otherwise search for our coronavirus section, and you will find a transcript of uh, an interview which was done by unheard.com. We've transcribed that without permission, but I think that's fair journalism, where uh, Professor Johan Giesecke, who is a retired, very senior public health advisor, talks about uh, Professor Ferguson's uh, model. And uh, you know, this is not quite as interesting as the, the next thing we're about to talk about, but Professor Giesecke is at the same, shall we say, elite London-trained public health model in general. Giesecke did his first training at the LSHTM, which is extremely highly regarded. And he has the gumption to say that Ferguson's paper was a very bad one. But uh, there are even people within Imperial College, uh, which of course is a large scientific, uh, large university with many scientific branches in it. But even people from within Imperial are saying the same now, as I think you have something queued up. Uh, yes, we have a little bit of video here. Let's have a look at this. You know, we, we basically, there are certain criteria, certain high standards we, 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 have, we hold them up to. And, you know, these are essentially, you know, um, to make it brief, I mean, there's these, we have to show evidence for analytical thinking. This is sort of the standard scientific approach where you 
a big problem and you apply a reductionistic perspective or you may make a big problem and divide it into smaller problems so you can uh, tackle them effectively and you do one after the other in a systematic way. And there's also sense of, the second one is sense of, um, synthetic abilities. You have to show evidence for that. And that just means you basically, you know, take a bunch of different uh, angles, different measurements, different data, different sources, um, and then you combine them and you have to have a coherent, you get a coherent story out of it in the end. And the last thing is essentially is a critical ability. And this is what I, what I essentially mean. So in a critical ability, um, you have to play devil's advocate yourself and you have to see all angles of the problem and you have to say, what are the limitations of my, my approach? What is the limitations of the data I used? Um, you know, sort of what would I do next if I had more time? These kind of things. And we ask our students, our, our undergraduate students to, to fulfill these high standards. But then if there's something really important happening in this world, then all of a sudden we sort of, uh, you know, uh, buckle and, and just sort of give in and just sort of, you know, follow, follow one way and sort of groups think. And this is, I'm, I'm personally astonished how, uh, how quickly it all went in one direction and without any resistance, without any questioning. So that was uh, an interview with uh, Professor Robert uh, Andrus from Imperial College, uh, Anna Breeze, doing that excellent interview. And I do suggest people watch that in full if they can, if they can uh, find it. Uh, it's easy to find. Uh, we, we played that segment out with permission. So, Alex, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the, the key thing to point out is that this is not even an example of the doughty Anna Breeze going and finding a source and enticing him to speak uh, reluctantly and to break ranks with the scientific guild. No, this is a case of Professor Andres actually seeking out Anna Breeze and saying, I would like, well, it's not quite whistleblowing in this case, but I would like to sound a dissident note from within the scientific teaching establishment of Imperial College, where in a very different sub-department, Neil Ferguson also teaches. And Professor Andres is there saying that he would fail his undergraduates for coming up with the kind of paper that the uh, notorious Ferguson paper was, because it fails to break down problems from large units into discrete smaller ones, it fails to synthesize solutions from different disciplines, and it fails to ask critically what are the limitations of the model that we have uh, put into the mix. Uh, absolutely. And if anybody wants to find that uh, interview, it is posted on uh, Off Guardian, so uh, that should be easy enough to find. Now, uh, let's have a look at this uh, from uh, Italy. Uh, and uh, this is the world, sorry, from Spain, I do apologize. This is the World Health Organization, uh, the Director of Public Health for the World, Earth, world Health Organization, Maria Nera. Uh, and uh, she's saying, yes, uh, on Monday, I believe, that uh, the models that they were working with uh, were increasingly ruling out a second wave of the coronavirus. Now, uh, our medical advice from the people that are uh, speaking to us is that there is not no possibility of a second wave. Uh, and so even this is slightly uh, misleading. But she said, uh, we've lowered the transmission rate so much that the virus will have difficulty surviving. We must be very careful to say whether this is the end of the wave. Uh, but the data at least shows us the transmission uh, and expansion of the first waves, uh, the first weeks have been avoided. Uh, and she said that uh, the World Health Organization still has certain doubts about the relationship of the virus to the weather. Uh, and that but she did insist that it was quite an interesting turn of phrase, making the geographical journey that's expected of a virus that wants to survive, Brian. Yeah. Yeah, what can you say? Uh, in the meantime, let's come back to the UK and Matt, Han Matt Hancock. Uh, and uh, 
uh, he said uh, that on the 26th of March 2020, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions England Regulation 2020 came into force. A review of these regulations must take place at least every 21 days to ensure that the restrictions remain necessary. Uh, I completed the third review as required on the 28th of May 2020. Now, this was given in uh, an emergency, or sorry, in a, 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 a ministerial statement. I do apologise. Uh, so it wasn't, uh, it was a written statement as well. It wasn't given to Parliament uh, verbally. It was a written statement. Uh, he went on to say this. Uh, the changes coming into effect include allowing for increased social contact outdoors in groups of up to six people from different households and opening some outdoor retail. Those from different households should continue strictly to observe social distancing guidance. Uh, well, we'll see the effect of that statement in a second, but this is, uh, this is the new Health Protection Coronavirus Regulations Amendment Number 3. Uh, and uh, the old text said, uh, during the emergency period, no person may leave the place where they're living without reasonable excuse. Uh, that has now been changed to this, uh, that there we go. For Regulation 6 substitute, uh, no person may, without reasonable excuse, stay overnight in any place other than the place uh, where they're living. So this has had the inevitable uh, response in mainstream media. Uh, the Cyprus Mail here publishing a Reuters report, no sex please, we're British, because of course this is what everybody was highlighting. If you're not allowed to stay overnight in somebody else's house, uh, then there's no opportunity for any kind of uh, shenanigans uh, of the type that, in fact, Neil Ferguson was uh, caught uh, uh, doing just uh, not so long ago. Um, so, but here is the kicker. Uh, in this uh, ministerial statement, uh, Matt Hock Hancock said this, additionally to ensure that we're making future decisions about the lockdown at the right time, the maximum review period will change from 21 days to 28 days. Uh, so Alex, uh, already we're seeing that uh, the review period being pushed out. Uh, he was trying to suggest that this was uh, because it was more appropriate to, to review the legislation every 28 days because that's the way that they measure R or not, whatever way they want to, to talk about it. Uh, but uh, uh, nonetheless, you know, obviously they're trying to push the boundaries uh, of what was originally agreed on this. Yes, uh, it's a case of mission creep. If you look at the legislation, I've printed it out to save paper for myself, four pages to a page, but people might be able to see that the top uh, text here says, in between the two lines there, statutory instruments. That's the category of legislative uh, instrument that's being used. In other words, as you keep pointing out to people quite rightly, Mike, that means it was plumped in front of the MPs for a couple of days and to see whether they would say boo to it, but it was written by ministers. The equivalent of a continental European ministerial decree or a United States executive order. Uh, some of the other guff that's come in here, padding, is quite a lot about elite athletes and their accompanying guardians if the elite athletes are under 18, which shows that if you make a hue and cry and, and, and stamp your feet uh, as, a, as a financial interest, because of course elite athletes are serious money in sports, then you can get yourself exempted. Now, libertarians, religious groups, uh, many professional lobbying groups did not manage to get that far. Was it for want of trying, I wonder? Uh, shall we split the blame and say it's because the, uh, the sport bodies have um, good lobbies and the government is prepared to listen? Or what is it that causes the relevant department to, to write pseudo law which exempts sport from uh, these, these strictures but not regular life? Good question. Any thoughts? Well, yeah, my thought is that what we're watching is the deliberate confusion of people. You don't want clear policy. You don't want clear law. 
you are confusing the minds of people because you want that situation of confusion and chaos. A little bit later, I shall try and bring that in when we're back on the subject to Dominic Cummings. Uh, now, on Friday, I think it was, we showed this graph. Uh, this is the uh, COBRA uh, graph showing the deaths from allegedly from COVID-19. Uh, we were making the point about uh, the holes. Uh, holes in the data uh, for weekends and bank holidays. Uh, and, uh, well... The BBC uh, apparently this morning during their for the, on their website for the coronavirus uh, uh, briefing uh, put the uh, the same graph up showing that the downward trend or they're claiming that the downward trend of daily deaths has stalled. Uh, and of course, the reason I was asking the question uh, on Friday was just to get people thinking about why this might be the case. Obviously, weekends are a part of it, and and uh, uh, lots of people got in touch saying that. Uh, uh, there's not so much reporting going on at weekends and so uh, the, the weekend deaths appear on the Monday generally and certainly that seems to be the case uh, on this graph but in which case why is the claim uh, that the downward trend of daily deaths has stalled because it's too early to say whether that's the case or not uh, if you've uh, been paying attention to the Daily Mail over the last number of weeks what, the, what this form of reporting has allowed them to, to do is that over the weekends we saw headlines saying only 400 people died in the last 24 hours. Only 250 people died in the last 24 hours. And then on the Monday morning, uh, the headline was 650 people died in the last 24 hours. And the implication was that things were getting immediately worse. Uh, or, or, you know, it was, it was designed to, in my opinion, uh, cause stress in people that the numbers had jumped back up again, when in fact it was merely a reporting issue. Uh, but of course, BBC here saying downward trend has stalled. Well, the question is, has it? Because if we look at the, the trend on weekend deaths, it's certainly fairly uh, heading southwards. Uh, same with uh, during the week. Um, that doesn't look like it's stalled. It looks like uh, a slight uh, adjustment in the seven-day rolling average has made them describe this as a stall, uh, again, designed to mess with people's minds and not a yeah. reflection of reality, Brian? Yeah, the fear factor, the constant pushing of the fear factor is what we see all the time with the mainstream reporting of uh, coronavirus. Well, let's just jump over to Dominic Cummings, who, of course, is still sat in the background. He's escaped the uh, small embarrassment of travelling when he shouldn't have been, and now he's deep at work in the heart of government. And some very, very interesting research has now started around Dominic Cummings. And this was a particular article sent through to us this morning. We've got quite a lot of information here. We've done our best to package it for the news today. Let's have a look at uh, TruePublica. And uh, their headlines is the co a cover story obscuring something far darker. So this is from the 28th of May. And uh, we'll put in a bit of text. It's an excellent article, encourage people to read it. If the Tories had reacted to the COVID-19 crisis and thrown their protective ring around the vulnerable and those in care homes, as they did with Cummings, we would have seen a different outcome to the sheer scale of death that this virus has brought to Britain. But this government wants chaos. This is the modus operandi of Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson as they both believe no real change can come without it. Now, I really paid attention to this, Mike, because this uh, brings us back to um, uh, reports that people like Danny Kruger came out with 
uh, several years ago where they said it was the intention of the Tory party to introduce chaos because out of chaos they were going to transform the uh, civil service and public it's, services. It, it's really interesting because I'm reading a book on uh, Mao Zedong at the moment. Uh, and uh, that was in the really early days, that was absolutely his position that China had to be completely destroyed and rebuilt. Yeah. Uh, and this seems to be exactly the policy that we're seeing at the moment. Exactly the policy and encourage people to go to this article because it's uh, referenced. It's so clear. It's so punchy. And of course, the headline there says it all that while we're watching all of this pantomime around COVID-19, something very dark is happening at the heart of government. Now, Trumpublica uh, references back to the work by Carol Cadwallander. And this was, um, this is going, this article is back to um, 2019, where she is commenting on what was happening around Brexit and the role of Dominic Cummings. She's bringing in Cambridge Analytica um, but we are now able to go back into this work and we're starting to look at Dominic Cummings in a different way. So, again, another article that I'm going to encourage people to go and read for yourself and um, see what she has to say. But we've taken a little bit of an excerpt here. So she says, for Dominic Cummings, it's an opportunity to drive an axe through everything he hates most about the British state, starting with Parliament. That's quite a, a statement itself. Starting with Parliament and ending, I suspect, with the civil service. That's the deal I believe he will have done with Johnson. He'll help Johnson get Brexit through and in exchange, Cummings will blow up his hated civil service. Now, this wasn't a throwaway comment that this uh, lady had made on Dominic Cummings because he had attacked her when she started to point out what he was up to. But her own work around Cambridge Analytica in, in, in particular and what it was doing around the time of the Brexit uh, debacle was really astonishing. She went on to say this. It seems absurd now our electoral laws rest on a gentleman's agreement, an agreement that Cummings threw a stick of dynamite at. His decision to do, uh, uh, sorry, his decision to do the same to our famously unwritten constitution should have surprised no one. The noise, the anecdotes and the tall Westminster tales are flares he sends up before he drops his bombs somewhere else entirely. It's not his genius that we should be debating, it's our own stupidity. There is a smash and grab of our democracy going on in real time, and this silences complicity. So I think it's remarkable that she uh, is another person who's looking at Cummings and saying this man is out to destroy uh, serious elements of the country, our constitution, how government works, how civil society works. And this, of course, is the repurposing of government that our Westminster insider warned us about Cummings in the lead. So let's move on just to this one, the Canary. And we're going back now to the 13th of May 2017. And this was part of the key detail that the Canary put out about the network of people who were helping to drive Brexit. Now, UK column hasn't changed our stance on Brexit. We needed to get out of the European Union. But what we're beginning to see is that something far darker was helping to move that 
that was not in the best interests of Britain. So this was a wiring diagram, and here we can see central Cambridge Analytica, but also aggregate IQ, linking in also organisations like Veterans for Britain and uh, big names in America, such as Donald Trump and his uh, campaign group itself. Um, but uh, let's just put in a little bit of text here. I apologise it's small. I'll read a little bit. It said there's an even bigger player in this industry. There's Sophie Schmidt, advised CSL head Alexander Nix to check out the work of US data intelligence agency Palantir Technologies. Schmidt, the daughter of Google chairman Eric Schmidt, used to work for SCL Elections which was later renamed Cambridge Analytica. So we've got some very interesting connections here. Palantir is chaired by billionaire and PayPal founder Peter Thiel, who is also a board member and a major investor of Facebook. Earlier this year, Thiel joined Trump's transition team. Apparently, Palantir has contracts to handle vast data sets on UK citizens for British spy agency GCHQ, as well as US citizens for the NSA. In addition, Palantir has developed an aid at the Spyware X Keyscore program used by NSA and its Five Eyes partners and subsequently expanded by whistleblower Edward Snowden. Such spyware could be useful for garnering consumer data, including, no doubt, voter lifestyle preferences. And I'll just add this as one other comment from another excellent article. Encourage people to go back and read it. Um, Democracy Questioned, New York University Associate Professor Tamsin Shaw sums up the application of voter behavior technologies. That, quote, this is military funded technology that's been harnessed by a global plutocracy and is being used to sway election in ways that people can't even see don't even realize it's happening to them. It's about exploiting an existing phenomena like nationalism and then using it to manipulate people at the margins. And the reason I'm putting this up on screen, Mike, is because we, we are now um, back where we know that the British government is using the COVID crisis to unleash applied behavioral science on the public. We've seen inside the SAGE reports that uh, they want to ramp up fear of the virus in order to get their policy through. And now we're casually saying we've extended from 21 days to 28 days, mm -hmm. locking people in their homes. But what have we got behind this um, massive software to um, record everything we're thinking and, and saying? So let's just uh, put one more quote from the Canary, but I've used that excellent image from True Publica. And this is from Cummings himself. He says, changing the course of European history via the referendum only involved about 10 crucial people controlling. Um, and these, these um, figures are his figures, 10 to the 7, while its effects over 10 years could be on the scale of 10 to the 8, 10 to the 9 people and 10 to the 12 um, pounds. So 10 people controlling a vast social economic change by means of all this uh, military um, data collection that we're seeing, including um, Pantia, who, which is working with GCHQ. I'll end here because one of the key people who've been really digging into Cummings came up with this as just a little forecast of what they think it was has been going on. The first stage was for this 
power group to take control in the UK, to take back control in order to steer the UK. The second stage was to get Brexit done to their satisfaction, not to the satisfaction of the public. The third stage was to get in Maven and ARPA, which uh, you've talked about, so we're into the data collection. And they are saying that uh, Cummings wants to get this, uh, this accomplished by the 1st of January next year. And the delay in uh, releasing us from lockdown is that all this can go on in the quiet. So the key agendas are the use of applied psychology, including these three word, three word phrase, uh, phrases. Um, they're using game theory. They are very keen on heading into genetic engineering and moving on to social school credits. Um, so this person is saying we've got six months to stop what's happening before it's complete. Cummings will move on and Boris will be replaced by Gove. That's just the opinion of one person, but we've got some very interesting stuff happening. And um, a little bit of a hot subject um, uh, for you, Alex, but if I can just say to you, it is unprecedented that we are now using uh, the intelligence services to come right into the heart of society to hoover up data, whether it's in the NHS or from the average person via their phones. And none of this is being debated or de in Parliament or declared to the British people. This is very sinister. Parliament is the link word between what Carol Cadwallader has brought out and what you have put on screen after that. Because Parliament is the only means we have constitutionally of determining the people's will. Now, if you have looped that out of the, quest of the question, removed it from the equation, as it seems Mr Cummings is very keen to do, then you have obviated another of the three word slogans that we have, one that he really hates, which is kick them out. In fact, Winston Churchill, if I can use a slightly, a, a mild expletive on the lunchtime news that Churchill uh, actually put in his own papers and speeches, he said the benefit of democracy is that if all else fails, you can kick the buggers out. Now, if you don't have elected members of parliament in the control and questioning arrangements for all that you've set out, then all of this apparatus can go on from government unto government, can't it? That's the, that collection of people, as I experienced when I was at GCHQ, can behave as a supranational blob, the Anglo-American Five Eyes Alliance, hoovering up the data, learning to control it and socially, socially analyse it in ever cleverer ways, as I saw between the, you know, the beginning of the millennium and when I left in 2009, great changes. But the final piece of the jigsaw is, of course, this is corporate intelligence, as I've always emphasised in speeches on this subject. The really Gucci technology, okay, the, the seed capital comes from us, the Muggins taxpayer, but it, when it's given through GCHQ and NSA and other bodies to the private sector, then the private sector comes up with the intellectual property, particularly the really sharp stuff that actually works. And then as a kind of dregs, the intelligence agencies get it back under nominal national control. What's the national control? It is the parliamentarians. There's no other form of, of effective national control or popular scrutiny of what's going on. So remove the parliamentarians from the equation and you have got fascism. Uh, Alex, uh, we were speaking to uh, a member of the House of Lords recently in the last day or two, and really he's expressing deep concerns uh, that you can have no parliament without a properly sitting upper chamber. Um, and uh, he is, as I say, deeply concerned about the fact that we showed this on, on the, uh, uh, the Science and Technology Committee at the very beginning of the programme. 
because everything's happening via Zoom. Uh, there is no sitting House of Lords at the moment. Uh, and the point that this uh, member of the House of Lords was making to us was that if if you're not a member of this, uh, uh, if you're not allocated a, a speaking slot for the day, you don't get to take part. So there can be no interventions from somebody that isn't actually formally part of the debate. It's not functioning as a democratic institution at the moment. Uh, and uh, you know, I think that says quite a bit about the, the, the position that we're in. It is because it's actually the final stage of the undoing of Parliament. Now, whether you're in a crown system or in a republican system, there is always a tripartite understanding of Parliament. OK, not all legislatures in the world are even bicameral. Uh, some US states, I think only Nebraska has a unicameral. New Zealand has got rid of its upper chamber. But the general consensus in legal and political philosophy is that you need a reviewing chamber precisely because it's the kind of body that can say, hang on, we're here to represent wisdom or the land or history rather than the current population and, and monetary interests. And this will not fly. This is not just. OK, but that's actually one of the layers that's been removed. But what is Parliament? Well, in the, in the Westminster model, it's classically described as the Crown, Lords and Commons assembled. It's one of the bodies of Crown advisers that spins out into its own institution in the high Middle Ages. But the Crown's involvement is next to nothing now, even if we manage to get by some small miracle Her Majesty to open Parliament in person rather than to delegate the, uh, the Prince of Wales to do it next time. Royal Assent has not been done in person since the second decade of Queen Victoria's reign from the 1850s onwards as one of the key men who speaks to us has managed to wheedle out of the parliamentary clerks. Uh, really the constitutional arrangement for, for the, the, the Queen actually saying this is lawful, I will sign it in the way that presidents do in republics actually was delegated to a number of people acting on behalf of the Queen. So we have actually a unicameral, not tripartite parliament now, just the Commons. And look at what the MPs are doing on Twitter, jumping up and down saying we must have digital voting, must have digital voting, otherwise they will, they will never be able to get this through. So the, the whole concept of assembling and taking counsel has been flattened and ground to dust in, the, in all of this. All you've got left is a few people pressing buttons as they are directed. Uh, absolutely, uh, sorry. So I'll just add with Cummings there boasting that 10 people are capable of pressing buttons which affect trillions of pounds. I think that was the right figure, trillions of pounds and millions and millions of people. Um, unbelievably dangerous times and nobody, well, I'm going to say we're doing it and, and obviously um, uh, a few other of um, media outlets are starting to do are asking these key questions about what Cummings is being allowed to do. But I just, I just push once again, why the delay? Why do they want us in lockdown? Because while we're locked up and running around with our heads full of fuzzy stuff, they can dismantle the whole of the Constitution. Um, but Alex, uh, the situation not better on the other side of the Atlantic? But it is at least being uh, having some attention called to it. I don't know whether you have the video to play out or whether I'll just no, talk no, about we, it. No, no, we aren't going to have time for that, I'm afraid. That's all right. So I'll talk through this. People can find the video anyway by looking for Tennessee House State Committee and then HB 2291. That stands for House Bill 2291. And they'll find this page with an embedded video. Now, Representative Bud Halsey is a Tennessee state representative uh, out in East Tennessee in a very rural, rural and libertarian part of the country and of the state. And uh, he introduces it at something like two minutes, sorry, two hours and 45 minutes into the session on the 27th of May, if memory serves. Uh, he introduces his amendment to House Bill 2291 and says we cannot have policemen 
uh, enforcing executive orders, or in the British system, they would be called statutory instruments, such as we were talking about earlier in the programme, uh, because this is tyranny, it's unconstitutional. And here he gives, in this particular instance, in answer to a question raised by a Nashville uh, representative in the House, in the committee, he says, well, there's four reasons why we can't have this. It's selective implementation of the Constitution. It would be ceding the uh, principle of legislation or the power to legislate to the executive branch, to the state governor, which he says is our fault, not his fault, that we've done it. He said that we don't die for public health. The famous slogan of the US um, War of Independence was not give me health or give me death. It was give me liberty or give me death. And he says, fourthly, if we say we're going to send policemen to break up church meetings and hairdressers, then what we're doing is elevating health and safety to the greatest American va value. Whereas in fact, the nation was of course founded as Britain is supposedly still founded on liberty instead. So there, there, are, there is some comeback in parts of the country. And I think that Representative Bud Halsey could do with some uh, appreciation and support for what he's said. Okay, very good. Uh, and uh, let's move on to, to Europe and what's going on there. And this, uh, well, Reuters covering the debate in Italy uh, over whether this uh, virus actually, we were talking about a second wave, wave earlier on, the fact that the World Health Organization uh, isn't, uh, isn't believing a second wave is coming. Uh, but uh, Italy saying that uh, the coronavirus, in fact, has lost potency in any case. Yes, yeah, so his remarks in the original Italian are on the left here, um, courtesy of ANSA news agency, and were actually given on the right, national state-funded television. And he's saying, clinicamente il virus non esiste più. So in the, from a clinical point of view, the, the virus is, is not there anymore. And what he explains is that it has lost so much of its potency. Remarks by which, uh, in which he's backed up, by the way, by other Northern Italian senior hospital directors, uh, one of them being Matteo Bassetti, who's head of infectious disease treatment at Hot San Matteo Hospital in, in Genoa. Now, these gentlemen immediately get comeback, which is described on the next slide. Um, so we have, for example, a gentleman who you might recall from the inset picture on the left. That's uh, Michael Ryan, the uh, Irishman who famously, famously said recently, we might be taking children out of homes. Uh, so he's the, the, the head of the relevant strand of the uh, WHO. And uh, he is saying uh, in specific response to Dr. Zangrillo's response, uh, remarks on Italian television, no, it, uh, it, it has not become less pathogenic. And on the right, we have a major Italian newspaper, Corriere della Sera, talking about some of the other people who have been criticizing Dr. Zangrillo's message as being, as being too uh, confusing for the Italian public. But there seems to be a dichotomy between you know, the, the, the people involved. It seems that merely clinical senior people in the ground zero area of northern Italy, such as Zangrillo and Bassetti, are saying the virus is a lot less potent than it was. If you look at some of the people who are reported as slapping them on the wrist for saying it, they are Franco Locatelli, the head of the National Health Council of Italy. Um, Luca Ricchielli, director of pneumology at a polyclinic in Rome, but crucially, he's also on the technical scientific committee. So he's got a state, I was going to say sinecure, that's disrespectful. He's got a, a state appointment there as well. Uh, Sandra Zampa is the Under Secretary of State for Health in Rome, and she says this is a confused or confusing message, sbagliato in Italian. And one more, Agostino Miozzo, coordinator of the Technical Scientific Committee. So basically, those who've got a government shilling, uh, or, well, of course, uh, hospital, hospital directors are often co-funded co by the public in the European continent, but those who are uh, paid partly by the government to give messaging on public health are those who are saying the public cannot cope with this message. Whereas those clearly, those purely looking after patients in the most affected areas are saying, I'm sorry, I'm not seeing as much potency in this virus anymore. 
Okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there. What's okay. next? Well, just very, very quickly, we were sent through this morning um, a warning about uh, basically um, a COVID-19 app appearing on the Android phone. So this is, this is what uh, the warning said. If you use an Android phone and have not installed the COVID safe app, then you may have COVID-19 exposure notification already on your phone. And then it says how to check. I'll let you freeze the screen and see that. Uh, I checked my own phone and indeed I found under phone services, COVID-19 exposure notifications. But it said you need to use Bluetooth to securely collect and share random IDs. Uh, device location needs to be on to detect Bluetooth devices. However, COVID-19 exposure notifications don't use device lo uh, location. It said the app can notify you if you've been near someone who has reported a positive co sorry, co that's co should be COVID-19 test result. The date, duration and signal strength associated with the exposure will be shared with the app. If you test positive for COVID-19, you can choose to share your phone's random IDs with authorised app. Uh, so it can notify others. And um, so it's not there yet, but it was interesting to see that on my phone. And I'll just bring this one up. I don't know whether, Alex, you'd like to comment on this very briefly, but this was uh, an article which I found where a nurse in Moscow was complaining bitterly that she'd had to load an app on her phone. And what you have to do is take a selfie at home to prove you're home. But she then had problems with the app and uh, the next thing is she found she'd accumulated 11 fines totaling $620, which is pretty close to a monthly salary. So fascinating that the data collection, it's happening in China, it's happening in Russia, the States and UK. And we know that ultimately this is going to be used for state surveillance. Um, look, uh, let's just uh, quickly move on, Alex, and, and head to, uh, to the Telegraph, because this is quite a a shocking story. Uh, apparently, Salisbury is better equipped to deal with all this than anywhere else. Yes, so the, the section you need to look at in the Telegraph is called You Are Not Alone. This is one of the tags on the story I'm about to feature, which is a story by Guy, Guy Kelly, a Telegraph writer I hadn't come across before. And this You Are Not Alone section is there basically to give feel-good stories of a Daily Mail flavour, but uh, written slightly a cut above uh, you know, to be of Daily Telegraph quality is the idea. But what's going on here? Well, the BBC is about to um, inflict upon us all, or those who, who pay the licence and watch the stuff, a three-parter on the response to the Skripal poisonings, allegedly, of 2018. And uh, this uh, prompted Mr Kelly to go and interview two ladies. One is an actress who played the other. So the uh, lady in question is um, Mrs Dashkevich, Tracy Dashkevich. She's Director of Public Health for Wiltshire Council. And she is played in the forthcoming drama by an actress, um, Anne-Marie Duff. And so the first extract here says that uh, while the southwest, this is near the end of the article, while the southwest, where Wiltshire and Salisbury are, has been among the least affected regions of the country in terms of cases and deaths, that's for coronavirus, the major challenge, says Mrs. Stachkiewicz, has been reassuring people and making sure we can keep anxiety to a minimum in the community. And she says that she's had a kind of 
our own mini second wave uh, in the sense that she was already experiencing the Skripal panic and the fact that a few months after that, of course, there was this panic over finding a perfume bottle and uh, a kind of a, a secondary infection in the Skripal story. So she's vaguely comparing that. And then she go on to the end, goes on at the end of the article to say that it's a big parallel or like a microcosm comparing the Skripal situation. That's the slide you're about to put on screen. Um, the um, Comparing the Skripal situation with uh, the coronavirus situation, she says it's like a microcosm of a parallel. The story, this is her focus, the story of frontline services, the people who really take care of us when the expletive hits the fan. The coronavirus has crystallised that for us, but I suspect the people of Salisbury were all too aware of it already. Fascinating because the Director of Public Health for, the, for Wiltshire, an English county, I'm not disparaging her sort of salt of the earth background, but she's come up through being a receptionist at a clinic, as it's explained in the story. And then she was uh, an open university social work uh, student. And then she, she came down to Wiltshire with her husband and got through health, public health. And she says she'll always stay in public health because, quote, it affects every area of our lives. It's not just, quote, fat and fags, British slang for cigarettes. Uh, it's about all of us and it's about narrative. And then you see the BBC getting interested and comparing that with the Italian piece I just featured, public health is starting to look as a discipline like a kind of narrative way of controlling public moods. It seems to have less and less to do with clinical science. Well, there's a very big debate uh, to be had about that. And uh, I think we could bring some interesting information into a future UK column news. Uh, yes, no, uh, we uh, are absolutely out of time. So we're going to, there's a, a section here that we're going to push back until Friday's uh, news programme. But I wanted to just end on this one. Uh, Dennis Hutchings, uh, who was serving in Northern Ireland uh, in the 1970s and 80s, uh, is uh, in court today. Uh, or is he? Well, we'll come on to this. Now, this is going to be, this is quite a controversial uh, subject, but we'll, we'll do our best to, to cover it here. Uh, now, he's being prosecuted for the attempted murder of John Patrick Cunningham in 1974. Uh, Cunningham was 27. He had learning difficulties. Uh, and he was uh, apparently shot while running away from an army patrol uh, in Northern Ireland. Uh, now, the issue here is that uh, Hutchins is in court, uh, except he isn't, of course, uh, because the case is being heard by video link uh, because of coronavirus. Hutchins is uh, 79 years old. He's got underlying health conditions. They say that this is why they're holding it by video link. Uh, he has requested that the court adjourn the hearing until he, the press and leaders from the veterans communities can attend in person. Uh, that's likely to be declined. Uh, but there, the key point here is that there's no jury. Uh, a jury has been declined. Uh, and uh, this really follows on, Brian and Alex, from what we were covering, was it on Monday's programme, uh, with uh, ex-senior lawyers and judges in this country, saying that there's such a bag backlog in criminal cases that there shouldn't be juries uh, in any criminal cases yeah. uh, going forward. So look, this is uh, what uh, Dennis Hutchings' uh, lawyer has to say, Matthew Jury. He's saying Dennis only seeks a fair trial by the usual standards of British justice. Time and time again, he's being denied these. Given that he's innocent until proven guilty and considering his service to the country, Dennis and veterans like him deserve better. And Alex, uh, it seems that there's quite a queue of these types of cases being built up here. Uh, and no matter which side of the argument you come down on, first of all, this uh, is a 79-year-old. Uh, he, 
if you're if you're on the other side of this argument, uh, a lot, in fact, the vast majority of of uh, IRA uh, people that have uh, have had allegations of criminal activity against them have either had that criminality dropped, they've been released from prison, whatever, they've been uh, forgiven for what they did. Uh, this doesn't seem to be applying to, to UK veterans, and I understand that there could be as many as 900 cases at the end of the day, although this seems to be being dribbled out very, very slowly. I'm just interested in your thoughts on it. Well, as briefly as possible, to take the last point first, uh, this is what David Ellis has called brand destruction of Her Majesty's Armed Forces. It is dissuading the current young generation from signing up. Uh, by telling them you'd be a mug to do that because you're going to end up in court maybe long after your retirement from active service. So that would be clearing the way for Her Majesty's government's continuing aim, which is European Defence Union. Now, as for juries, what a wonderful irony that Mr. Jury is having to call for a jury to be impanelled. Here is continental law and how it does it. Right? There's a book that's only that thick. Uh, first year legal students in the Netherlands examined on this. It is the decision model of Articles 348 to 350 of the Criminal Procedure Code of the Dutch Civil Code, which is a fairly pristine Napoleonic continental uh, criminal code, such as France has, for example. And here you have a table, for example. Did he do it? And this is to a judge sitting alone, or three judges, of course. Do you think he did it? Yes, I think he did. And how can I get him off? On what kind of technicalities? I can either say, well, he was following what he thought were legitimate orders, uh, or I can say that uh, his guilt was, did not feature because, you know, there was some overriding requirement or thing in the guy's mind. So uh, in some cases, I will exonerate him. And in others, I will say, well, you're not guilty, you're innocent. You're just not going to be prosecuted. And that still leaves the way free for people to be sent for a bigotry treatment or, or curfew orders or whatever it is. Right. So the whole of criminal law on the continent is predicated upon you cannot have a jury because I am here as an automaton. Parliament has written a code. I must find you guilty if the prosecutor comes. I must exonerate you if I've gone through this model. There is no sympathy. There is no feeling for what uh, many English jurists have said is the reason for a jury, which is that they look at things differently from a judge's. That's precisely why the coming European and global government doesn't want juries, because it does not want juries to think differently from judges. Judges are there actually for fairly robotic reasons. They're, they're person. They're supposed to be dispassionate from the case, but more particularly, they're supposed to follow a tick list. They are not there to administer justice, but to administer law. Two different concepts. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, what a situation we're in, a very dangerous situation. The Constitution, common law, Britain's law being taken apart. We know that there's a cabal inside government. We do not know who those people are. Who is the British government at the moment? As David Scott says, a government of occupation. And what's the result of not having any proper law? Well, everybody is vulnerable. If you have your children taken away from, from you, that's one example. If you're a veteran, something happened in the past, you're not even going to be put in front of a jury. Mm. This is very, very dangerous stuff. Perhaps we should end there. Yes. We'll say thank you very much, uh, Alex, for joining us. Thank you also to our viewers and listeners. And a big thank you to everybody who's sent us kind words, but also taken out those subscriptions and donations. If you like what we do, please support us. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Friday. Bye-bye.